the Karate of the Garage. I'm Corey Culp. And I'm Joseph Culp. Yes. Freddie is on location, as you guys know. So uh, with Joey standing in today, uh, this is our normal movie episode. We just had the 25th anniversary of the first date that I went on with my wife, Joey's mom. And when we went out 25 years ago on August 10th, we went and saw the movie that we're covering today, Peter Jackson's Frighteners. And this one, this was an interesting one because it's the first thing he did after Beautiful Creatures. And it was a culmination of working with Bob Zemeckis and, well, it's, it's a definitely a New Zealand-U.S. collaboration and, it's, and it shows through the character actors in it, as well as obviously Michael J. Fox. But this one across the board has just so much talent in there. Danny Elfman handles the score. Uh, cinematography is done by two different people. Um, one of them specifically is Ulan Bollinger and, and John Blick. And of course, the production company is Wingnut, which is Peter Jackson's company, even though Bob Zemeckis is the lead producer on this one. But this one was definitely a, a, a vibe off of Tales from the Crypt, which, of course, we've talked about numerous times that Bob Zemeckis was involved in when we did the Dark Castle series. But this one, this one's a special one, obviously, for the reasons I just given you. And so, but today was the first time that Joe had seen the movie. And uh, so, and this is the last time I actually, that Peter Jackson did a horror movie, which kind of sucks because there's a certain threshold where they pass where it's been comedy horror and then it turns into a straight horror movie and it's fucking so good. Anyway, so Joe, what's your overall impression of the movie after you've finally seen it after I've been talking about it all your life? I enjoyed it. It was really good. I think Michael J. Fox really did a great job. Yeah. It was nice to see him. He's always been a very physical actor. Yeah. You see that a lot in the Back to the Future movies. And this is 12 years after the first Back to the Future. And I think it was six years after the third movie. And, but, you know, he and Bob are really good friends. And this definitely was a favorite thing, but he owns the role to the point where I don't think anybody else could have pulled it off, but all the actors in this own, they're, they're, everybody Mm -hmm. is perfect in the role. Yeah. From Trini Alvarado, John Aston, who plays Judge. And by the way, uh, when you see the movie, if you haven't seen it before, makeup design for the Judge that John Aston plays, which is probably one of the funnest characters of the movie, was designed by Rick Baker. We talked recently also during the Dark Castle series about Jeffrey Combs. And Jeffrey Combs is in this playing an FBI agent who is... <laughs> if you get a movie where Jeffrey Combs is in it and he doesn't act like you would expect Jeffrey Combs to act... There's something wrong. He's been miscast. Yeah. He's somebody that used to come into mom's work all the time when she was first working at the eye doctor. It's funny because I don't think she recognized him from the being in the movie or being an actor. Yeah. She just said he was, he was weird. I'm like, Jeffrey Combs. (laughs) One of these days we'll get around to getting you on uh, reanimator, but you're you're not ready for reanimator yet because, um, well, I want you to see the unrated version. And right now you're not even ready for the R-rated version. <laughs> it's just, it, it earned his rating or it's unrating, I should say. The tone of this movie is very, when you first half of this movie is very similar to the tone of Reanimator. Yeah. But that one leans more horror comedy. But I think the comedy comes from the absurdity of it. Stuart, oh, Gordon, yeah. Stuart Gordon did an amazing job with that movie. And he's uh, one of these days we're going to crack that egg and get to enjoy some Stuart Gordon. Rest in peace. The score, though, I mean, even though it's a Danny Elfman score, it doesn't sound like a Danny Elfman score, which is 
interesting, especially for, for 97 when all he seemed to have done at that point was a whole bunch of Tim Burton movies. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's why he kind of stood out. But of course, you know, he did the Tales from the Crypt theme for the TV show. So no surprise here that Bob, you know, employed him for something like this. It's, 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 fun, it's a really fun movie. Peter Jackson wrote the movie with longtime collaborator, Fran Walsh, also his wife, who has been involved with all his movies. I mean, this is the last thing he did before he started the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I mean, that was a an undertaking, you know, eventually, of course, he would lead to him winning the Oscar for Return of the King. But this was like, this one has so much going for it from the standpoint of the fun thing like he did with Dead Alive. And again, Dead Alive is anything you've seen and it's on the list for a lot of reasons why Reanimator's on your list. I could probably get you there on this one sooner. Yeah. But I mean, you know, when you have two zombies having sex, I mean, I don't know, a certain point. I don't know how much I can show. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the, the the plot of this one, of course, is if you haven't seen it, Frank Baster, who Michael J. Fox plays, everybody in town looks at him as, you know, as a shill and that he's not really a medium like he presents himself. But we all know, we soon realize that he is a medium. He can see ghosts. But the problem mm-hmm. is, yeah, he is a little bit of a shill because he's using ghosts. Yeah, he's using ghosts to, help, to get money. Yeah, to help generate jobs. Finger quotes there, jobs for him. The visual effects in this screams 1996, and that's okay. And it kind of sells to the surrealism of it. I mean, again, the CG isn't great. We're only three years out from Jurassic Park. So it's okay that it that it's a ghost movie that kind of leans a little bit on the ghost. We talked a little bit about that during the Dark Castle series with House on Haunted Hill, uh, also with 13 Ghosts. It's not less with 13 Ghosts, but definitely with House on Haunted Hill where the CG is, you know, what it is. <laughs> when we watched the uh, regular theatrical version. We did not watch the director's cut, which is on the Blu-ray. Figuring that if anybody ends up watching this on the streaming or rental services, you're probably not going to have access to the director's cut. So unfortunately I can't relay because it's been a while since I've seen the DC on this. So I couldn't recall for sure the differences on it. We discover it and it's pretty intricate plot. Honestly, you know, there's a lot going on with how Frankie developed his abilities and what led to him being and doing what he does now. They don't really say what he does before that, other than he was building the house Yeah, before the, the incident, if you will. But this one, D Wallace stone in it, who we all know is ET's mom or is Karen from the howling. Joey is yet to see the howling for a lot. Again, I'm building his trying to build his cinematic vocabulary up. So by the time he gets to something like that, it's like, oh, okay. But now he has seen the Eddie Quist transformation scene from The Howling. So he's seen that. I've shown him. Mm-hmm. That. I haven't denied him the important parts of, of things. Yeah. But one of these days, we'll get around to covering what I feel is the best werewolf movie ever made. was The Howling. I'm not dumping on American Werewolf. I just think The Howling's better. Again, the cast in this also includes Jake Busey playing D. Wallace's, the younger D. Wallace's boyfriend. And psychopath, the beginning of the movie that you see through uh, newsreels. What was your feeling about the overall movie from the standpoint of sometimes horror comedies don't work? Mm-hmm. It works with something like Hatchet works, but you have, again, you haven't talked about things you haven't seen yet. Yeah. <laughs> but there's been horror comedies that you've seen, like Evil Dead 2. Yeah. And so yeah. that, that, I mean, that leans more on the if the Three Stooges made a horror movie kind of thing mm-hmm. it, and not a slight at all because it's one of my favorites and not asking you to compare to that, but from the standpoint of 
a movie that is, do you feel it's more comedy than horror or horror, horror than comedy? I think back then it would have leaned a little bit more to horror, yeah. but around like now it kind of feels more toward comedy. Yeah. And I think the comedic aspect of it is definitely stronger, but you see, you feel a shift. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you have that moment where, you know what, if you haven't seen this movie yet, it's 25 years old. Um, we, uh, this is one of those few times where not, I, I'm going to warn you, we are going to kind of lean into some, some of the aspects of the movie that may be considered spoilers, but you've been warned when it's revealed that D Wallace is very much part of what's been happening since Bartlett, Jake Busey's character was electrocuted for his crimes for killing 12 people in the yeah, hospital. Yeah. Did you think for any, until it was revealed, did you think she was involved at all? I think she was. At one point, did you think she was involved? Well, I think the main thing that was going through my head when I I saw the ashes, it, it was it was like me trying to think if it really was the father that was like killing everyone, and if it ended up being the boyfriend, like it was one or the other. If it ended up being the boyfriend, I was like, she has to be helping. Well, and what, when you say the father, what do you mean by the father? Well, because remember, like the ashes were open in one scene. So I thought the father was going and attacking in the house. I thought it was the father that was killing all those people. Oh, so you, even, yeah. though they, even though they don't talk about the dad, you thought it, was, you thought yeah, it might've yeah. been her dad and, yeah. and the, the mom's husband, even mm-hmm. though they never talk about it. Yeah. I, I mean, they talked about it once, but like either it was the father or it was going to end up being the boyfriend. I was leaning towards both of them. Well, considering where it, what where the ashes were, it made sense that yeah. y- y- you you could think that mm. uh, and not think it was Jake Busey's character. Melanie Linsky, who you guys know, she's also in Beautiful Creatures we mentioned before. You know her as the crazy next door neighbor from Two and a Half Men. She said one of the deputies in this, and she's also they also used her last name for Ray and Lucy, the two lead characters. In the movie, the one that 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 uh, Trini Alvarado plays, and Peter Dobson, who we meet early on, as the is the a hole Ray, but he really was an a hole too. You notice that all the a holes die in this? Yeah, you know? not surprised. Yeah, but like Frank, Frank dies temporarily twice. <laughs> That's a lot to do. There's a lot to die twice in a movie, right? Yeah. And still be alive in the end. Yeah, in that one scene, I was thought thinking either he was faking it or if he actually died. Which which one of the the first when, one or second? When he, when he got the second, choked out. The second one. Yeah. You you another thing too is you weren't sure if he was dead mm-hmm. either or if he was just passed out. You can just you can oh, get, yeah. you can get yeah. choked. But then when he just grabs her and takes her, yeah, that, that's <laughs> so great. That's one of the moments of the movie where you're just like, what just happened when they're floating up to heaven. Now, see, again, when you get away with that kind of stuff in 96, again, again, the effects aren't great, but it's like mm-hmm. Freddie and I were talking about with Black Widow, 80%, 90% of the movie is really good, except for when it finally gets to the end, it's too Marvel. You know, the, the end of... You mean when they're falling from the Yes, the th- that's ridiculous. It's like a video game. It's too much. But the rest of the movie is so good, it overcomes that. So yeah. That's how I feel about this movie. I never felt it at the time because I thought it was really good. And I still feel that way because Peter Jackson is a really great storyteller. But it just reminds me, every time I watch this movie, it reminds me more and more that I want it to be, I want him to go back to making horror movies again. You know, I, you know, after he did the Lord of the Rings series, he did King Kong. He kind of got back to a little bit of Lovely Bones, which is kind of leaning a little bit on, more on the, some of the stuff that you see in this. 
but that was a based on a, on a novel. And then he did the Hobbit movies and then he was involved with mortal engines, but I think he was just a producer on that. And when we talk about the effects earlier and it's hard not to talk about those effects and talk about Peter Jackson, not mention Weta, uh, you know, Weta is his, his visual effects company, not unlike how George Lucas did mm-hmm. came up with ILM. And you know, Weta has done some amazing work. I mean, the, the, what they did on the Lord of the Rings is crazy, but this was a movie where they kind of get their feet wet mixing with scale models and CG imagery and, and prosthetic makeups and practical effects and all kind of mashing them up together because the other stuff looks so good, practical effects and all that. It's tough when you, when the CG can't live up to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall this had a hard date, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an inexpensive budget, but they did shoot in New Zealand. So that kind of helped on cost, but it was $26 million budget in 96 or 95 when they shot it. Uh, lots of mixed bags of accomplishments with the effects because it's not, it's not great across the board, <laughs> but the movie did. Okay. Uh, I really thought that it would have a, a movie. And here's the thing. The movie came out July 19th. Mom and I didn't see it until, till the 10th of August. Now for a movie that had been out for almost a month, you know, mm-hmm. three and a half weeks, yeah. well, actually when it eventually it would be four full weeks. Usually movies in 96, if you, if you don't open and you're not really making a lot of money by the second week, like through the second week, they're pulling you and putting something else in. And maybe it has something to do with the time it came out. There just wasn't anything to put out there. Who knows? But it only, it only grossed $29 million, which isn't very much. Because it didn't do well, we didn't get a sequel. They definitely set up for potential oh, sequels. Yeah especially with Lucy being able to now see Ghost mm-hmm. herself. Obviously, we're setting up a whole world that they kind of, you know, taking advantage of. And, you know, we, we know that Michael J. Fox can work within, within a franchise because of Back to the Future, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it was a nice setup, too. Tales from the Crypt relationship and all that. Yeah, it could have really worked. But it, unfortunately, didn't make enough money for them to move on to do something like that. But as a standalone movie, I mean, it's pretty intricate. I always and I always watch the movie and forget about certain things. I always forget about Jeffrey Combs' FBI character and how. I mean, I know he's a weirdo because he's it's Jeffrey Combs, but you know, my body is a roadmap of pain. <laughs> Again, when you get around to seeing Reanimator and other movies that he's in, you're unfortunately I don't say unfortunately you were going to look back in this movie and go. Oh, he's just like, he wasn't that, but really yeah. what you're going to, it really what matters is, you know, in 1985 when he did reanimator, that's where he's like, oh yeah, I think too, the, this has a couple of needle drops in there. You have a, a cover of, you know, don't fear the reaper, which it would have surprised, right? If it fits for the most part, but really you have Danny Elfman's score here really carrying the movie. It's available. You can actually buy the soundtrack, which, which surprised me. I wasn't, I didn't realize it was available anywhere. But it's got some great cues in it that don't sound like his work, which is surprising because this stuff usually screams, hey, I'm a Danny Elfman score. If you haven't seen the director's cut, it's considerably longer. It's 12 minutes longer. Oh, that's, nice. that's a lot. That's a lot. How, how long was the movie originally? It, it's an hour and 50 minutes. So it's, it's 110 minutes. It's more than 10% longer. That's a oh, lot. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. Nothing compared to what, you know, what the man would eventually do with Lord of the Rings. 
which are already long movies, but then he made extended versions where every one of them was like an average of 45 minutes longer, each of the three movies. Probably some scenes I haven't seen before. Because I know I've seen like maybe the first two movies, like a little bit of them. Mm, maybe parts of them. Yeah. Believe me, you haven't seen them. I know. It's, an, it's funny when... <laughs> I, I like Peter Jackson just fine. And when the movies came out, great. I mean, they're sitting on our shelf over there. So are the Hobbit movies. I haven't seen any of them. I haven't watched the Hobbit movies. I saw like a little bit of the first one. This is, it's why I wish he'd go back to, you know, scale it back again. Go back to your roots. Again, another one you haven't seen, which is, <laughs> I don't know where the roadmap is for the, for you to see it, but Bad Taste is another one that was the first thing I'd seen him do. One of the things, too, that is unusual for a ghost movie, most of the time ghost movies are regulated to, a, you know, a ship or a, mm-hmm. or a building. With one specific ghost. Right. Yeah. With this, they kind of give you, they allude to the ghost being, you know, in the house and only in the house. But then eventually we see the ghost we're introduced to the ghost in the house, but then we mm-hmm. see that ghost later on. And as we're hearing about all these, this epidemic of people having heart attacks out of nowhere, even when they're perfectly healthy, we discovered that the ghost that we got introduced to in the beginning is the, is the entity that's going around squeezing the heart of all these, all these people. Mm-hmm. And taking their soul. Yeah. yeah. What's great too, is when they introduce the whole numbering in the head thing, we don't know what that means yet. We haven't seen. I had a general idea that it was like a kill count. Oh, sure. That's not hard. It's not hard to figure out. But when you first get introduced, when you see the number was when Frank is at Lucy's house Mm -hmm. and he says, Hey, which one of you assholes showed me that you put the number on there. It wasn't funny. And we're not familiar with Patricia and Bartlett yet. So Mm -hmm. we don't know about the the count. We know we don't know any of that stuff yet. I think it's really well, I think the story works really well because it's such an, in most movies like this, you're, 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 they're just a straight line, right? It would be, yeah, Bartlett and, and Patricia did this stuff and now Bartlett's back killing people and, she, you know, she's involved with it. That's usually what, that's the straight line. But no, they take that straight line and then they kind of put cross hatches of, hey, Frank is this medium and he's going to intercede this way. And another cross hatch is the FBI guy who's part of, been part of multiple cults. And he's developed this of quirky, I don't want to say quirky, but this very unusual way of doing his job. And then another cross hatch of just, it's just so full of things that break the norm. Again, you have a, you have a cemetery some, mm-hmm. and then you have a haunted house and you have essentially a haunted hospital, but it's it's where the entities are. It's it's they're getting haunted because the entities are able to move around freely. If you think about it, really the town is haunted. It's not just yeah. a, a building. If that's a rarity with the movie, usually that's the one time they that's how they skew their way from that kind of storytelling. Now, what's funny is with this movie when Fran and, and Peter Jackson were working on the movie, they were, they were conceiving this idea when they were working on beautiful creatures, the movie before that, but not, they weren't even shooting that one yet. They were already just like talking about it. And they were in a script writing phase where I think some elements that we see in this movie were struck from that movie and the development of that movie. And that moment, they ended up writing a three page treatment. Now you're not too familiar with treatment, but basically a treatment is, 
is like a, is like an out a, a script outline, but mm-hmm. but more wrote wrote in a prose, almost like a like a novel, like a short story. Yeah, I'll probably learn about that a little bit more. And yeah, and yeah, he just Joey just started a video production class, and boy, I think for any of you out there that that are my age or within 15, 20 years of my age, would appreciate the fact that you are in high school you know, as a freshman are going to be learning about three act structure and scene breakdowns and story breaking. It's, it's going to be special because I had to learn all that crap on my own and you're going to be in a classroom doing it. Yeah. And a lot of film students, you know, film, film school students did the same thing, but they had to pay like thousands of dollars to learn all this stuff. Anyway, it's funny how that available to you guys now. And it's pretty cool. That was back in 92 Mm. when Fran and Peter were doing this. And this movie went to production in 95. So they ended up doing the, 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 the three-page treatment got fully fleshed out um, in early Jan- early 93. And then they pitched it in early 94 to Zemeckis. And they went forward and said, hey, you know, you'd be a good director for this. Bob ended up being executive producer. And they got all their funding from Universal because Bob could do anything and Universal would give them money for it because... He made them so much money with Back to the Future. One of the things too was surprising. And then Peter Jackson was given full creative control. I mean, he got final cut. Mm-hmm. So even though if Universal wanted to make changes, Peter Jackson could say, no, I don't want to do that. And Bob Zemeckis, you know, they're, he's a great storyteller himself. Being, a, you know, somebody who co-wrote with Bob Gale, uh, the, the Back to the Future series, but he's a fine director and cast away. You know, we can go down a big list of uh, Bob Zemeckis' work. Yeah. But what's interesting that there's a director's cut of this. What's funny because if there was, if, if Peter Jackson has, and this says a lot about the director's cut. If he had final cut, why didn't he put out the director's cut? Because he recognizes that the movie at two hours and two minutes is too long. Yeah. You know, a movie at, at, at 150, it's a good run. It's a good length for this, especially now, what, for the story. What is an extra... Like what was the extra scenes that were in the director's cut? There, there were. I mean, it's some some scene extensions. Sometimes it's not always about additional scenes or yeah. deleted scenes. It's just sometimes extensions get cut. Mm-hmm. Do they change the movie? <laughs> Other than making them longer, not really. I prefer the version that we watched. Mm. I I, don't, I couldn't see the movie being longer though. That's the thing. It, it's a good length at one fifty. I'm just concerned that. That, you know, it's cool to watch those scenes, you know, they're, they're pretty great mm-hmm. because if you enjoy a movie, you like to see extras, but you can see easily why it was cut because do you feel like there's any, anything missing from the movie that you saw that you thought, Hey, this is confusing. Yeah. There's nothing there. It, the, the story works. You know, it's not like when you see the extended cut of aliens mm-hmm. where those extra 17 minutes make the movie totally different. You know, yeah. explain, and with that, it explains why Ripley is so drawn to new, the new character and why she's so maternal and to want to help her. But when you look at director's cut, sometimes it makes a difference in a good way. And sometimes it, mm-hmm. it, it, it detracts from the movie. Now, when you start looking at something like Blade Runner, where, where you have a drastically different version. I mean, look in that cabin over there. I got a Blade Runner set that's got five different versions of the movie. Five. Yeah, it's unnecessary. <laughs> but when you're making a movie in 1982, Ridley Scott has the 
and there's a lot of money being spent on it. And you can, you, you can have different versions. There's like a work print version, a director's cut version, the theatrical version. I'm blanking out what the other two were, but yes, there's five versions on there. It's crazy talk. Anyway, we're talking about the Frighteners here. One of the disappointing things about us is we didn't get a sequel. It really feels like, well, even better. It feels like we can, this, this would be a great limited series now. Mm-hmm. I could see a nice 10 episode series that's coming back. And I wish Fox was capable of making this kind of, uh, kind of work down. He just can't know. His Parkinson's is, has really affected his speech and his physicality, and which is it's unfortunate because anybody that suffers from Parkinson's, you know, your great grandmother, Brim, she she had it, mm. and it's such a debilitating disease. It's tragic when it happens to anybody. Again, the movie came out we mentioned earlier in the middle of July. What was weird was they were shooting to put this movie out in October. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, right? But you know why it got moved up? Universal liked the rough cut so much. They moved it up three months. I'm like, if you're excited by it, just leave it where it was at. Mm. This movie would have blown up if it got released in October, I think. But that's just me. Someone's kind of on Universal. Like if they actually released it in well, October. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of on them for not <laughs> being better about it. One of the things that was always such a standout when you went to see Frighteners was the one sheet. And the one sheet didn't have anybody on there. Like if you look at the Blu-ray cover, none of those people were on it. Mm-hmm. It was just a skull pushing through. It was lenticular. Mm-hmm. So when you walk by it, it was 3D. It was like when you walk past it, it looked like it was, th- it looked like it was 3D the way it would stick out. Yeah. I wish they would have sold those, but, and they're hard to find too. You get a lenticular cover of that. It's like four or $500 now for a movie that didn't do well. No, the, the movie found a home on home video, just like a lot of movies too, <laughs> especially when you, you're on the cusp of the DVD era, just six, seven months later is when DVDs got introduced to the out in the world. And eventually Frighteners did find an audience. And of course, when it hit HBO and Showtime or whatever else it hit, it, it did pretty well from that. The movie is a really good time. If you haven't seen it yet, I hope you weren't listening to the whole episode. <laughs> Some stuff where we still were trying not to say too much about it. Again, along with the Jay Busey and D. Wallace Stone and Jeffrey Combs, Peter Dobson, Trini Alvarado playing Lucy, Arlie Ermey is in it. And he almost is spoofing his character that he had in Full Metal Jacket. Now, you don't know Full Metal Jacket, but as soon as he, but as soon as he shows up in the cemetery and starts doing his bit from Full Metal Jacket, you recognize, I don't think anybody that's of a certain age doesn't recognize the, the what he's doing, but I think some, like you, you, you don't know what it's from. You just recognize it. The, the character doing that, you just don't know what it's from. Yeah. Well, yes, he plays a drill instructor and, and classically he, he, it's funny is a year before this movie came out, I was uh, managing a video store, which I've mentioned numerous times on the show. And Mr. Ermy used to come in all the time mm. and uh, he would rent movies from us. And he was, he's military dude through and through, but he was such a sweetheart and such a cool guy. He loved to come and talk about movies. Came with him when he returned movies and people would see him, like they come in to return stuff and kind of like look at him like, wait, is that? But he talked so low key, right? He talked really low. Because when he starts, when he goes into character like that, when he starts giving it to you, like you see in that movie, it's great. You know, it, you, I don't, and I don't, it was, I was more jarred by him 
not speaking to me like what he does in the movies. Mm-hmm. It took me a second to kind of adjust to it. Yeah. But the movie is chock full of character actors that are just fantastic. Again, we like we mentioned all other people. Also, Elizabeth Hawthorne, she plays the the head, she plays the editor of the local newspaper that outs Frank early on as being a fraud, but we know he's not a fraud. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's shady, but he's not a fraud. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of other really fun characters in there, but I don't, I, I'm remiss not to talk about Chai McBride and Jim File, who are the two spirits that help Frank. Mm-hmm. They are so funny in it. Early on, I mean, not early on, but they are the comedic element. They are the comic relief of the movie. They are the spirits that help Frank muster up business. He'll they go in advance to a home, and in a lot of cases, just throwing dishes and stuff around. In one scene, um, grabbing three babies and making them fly around the room. <laughs> but yeah, I was gonna say because the mo- mother of the kids, uh-huh. it was a mother, right? Right. Yeah. How she instantly like when Frank shows up, like she instantly wants to kick him out. But then, how did what? Well, how? Why were the babies flying? That's that's one. That's something. That's one of the things that always cracks me up. But but I I've always chalked it up to being she's she's a snooty she's a snooty rich woman, you know what I mean? She's just one of those rich people that just doesn't understand see the world the same way. And so yeah, and because she's rich, she's probably always feeling like she's being taken advantage of. You see how she's you know how she was treating her her help right. Mm-hmm. yelling at her because somebody who's come over to visit, you know, she doesn't seem like a very nice person. Obviously. And, and somebody yeah. that's been, and somebody that's been taking advantage of her or thinks that always people are taking advantage of them. So when she reads that, or we, we, you know, we're led to believe that she's read that because she's throwing that headline in Frank's face when he shows up. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you ignore that? But, <laughs> but look, everybody in town, look what, look what happened in the museum. Right. Mm-hmm. The lead editor, the, the the lead reporter, right, that outed Frank, he dies. Of all, he dies in the museum, but Frank's not there the whole time. He shows up after he's already dead. He shows up because he sees the Skyway going up, right? Yeah. And he's but, but why would the police still be going after Frank even after a bunch of like mummies start going after them? It's like, well, no, he they showed up to yeah. get him because they were already they were already trying to bring him in for something else. Because remember, oh, yeah, yeah, but it had yeah. nothing to do with that. That's just where they found him. It mm-hmm. Had nothing to do with 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 that. Because because the, the sheriff just said go get him, bring him in because he was the last one seen at the at the restaurant when the old man died in the bathroom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that, but why aren't they? I mean, yeah, they're shooting at him. Like they're probably panicking, but. They just never talk about it again. They're not shooting at him. They're shooting at the, at the mummies. I, I know. No, no. I know they're shooting at the mummies. I'm talking about the mummies moving. They, they don't talk about it again. They just don't talk about it. Well, you don't actually, you don't even, you don't even see those, those deputies again. Not true. They, because it's not part of the story. It's not, yeah. we, we know, but what's funny, I thought was really the one for the editor to see, oh, there's no money for you here, Frank. There's no money for you here. I'm like, well, well he wasn't there when it happened. What I thought was very really clever, like even when the editor dies, she's knocked out. So she all, all she does is when she comes, when her spirit leaves her body to go to heaven, mm-hmm. all she sees is Frank hanging over her, and she just assumes that Frank killed her because she doesn't know that yeah. that Bartlett did it because she was passed out. I thought that was really clever because he chased because 
he chased off Bartlett by the time she woke up, or I should say, woke up by the time she got she she rose from from her corpse, if you will. Now, the movie is super fun. You haven't seen it; it's a good time. This is a this is not the first time I've you know got on the mic with Joey and after we watched the movie. First one we did was Predator. One of these days, we'll do a Patreon release of that. But this one is a is a good time. I wish I could tell you it was on HBO Max because a week and a half ago it was. <laughs> so they removed it. yeah, it's not on any service right now. So the rental's only a couple bucks. And you can probably pick up the Blu-ray, which is really good um, for like eight or nine dollars now. And if you're a Peter Jackson fan, you don't own it already. Shame on you, right? So if you want to follow the show on Twitter, that's at Karate Pod or on Instagram, the same at Karate Pod. Or if you want to follow us on Letterboxd, that's at Corey underscore Culp. Or if you want to follow Freddie on Letterboxd, it's Tom Cody. Or if you'd like to follow him on Instagram, it's at Rock and Roll at 33. That just supports the show on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash KITG podcast. Joey's not on on social media because I'm I won't let him be. It's for the bits. Yeah. It's bad. He'd be terrible. All he'd be doing is getting fights with people. <laughs> It'd be funny. But then I'd find him curled up in the corner, phone on the floor with a shattered screen. Hear <laughs> <laughs> my feelings, Dad. Hear my feelings. And then I look at it later on, it's a girl. Broke my heart, Dad. No. She said Fortnite sucks. No. <laughs> she says you suck at it anyway. Girls can be so mean. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? Something's tickling my ear. Your hair? <laughs> yeah. Just get a haircut. No. See. <laughs>